During his ministry on earth, Jesus' first miracle was at the wedding in Cana. There he turned water into wine. Of course, the party's host was amazed, but not with the miracle. He was surprised at the break with custom. The man wasn't even aware that a miracle had been performed. He had no idea that that sweet-tasting wine had just moments earlier been H2O. No, what amazed the host was that the best wine had been saved to last. In John chapter 2, verse 10, he says to the groom, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. And here's the point for us today. It's God's custom to save the best for last. That's what we'll get a taste of this morning. For God saves the grandest glories, the greatest amazements for the very end. The most magnificent miracles are reserved not for time, but for eternity. In Psalm 16 verse 11, God promises His people pleasures forevermore. Well, in Revelation 22, we get a sip of those pleasures. And it proves that one day we'll all say to our Lord Jesus, You have kept the good wine until now. Recall in chapter 21, John took us to the very end. You could call it foreverland. It's a point yet future. The world as we know it now is in our rearview mirror. We're past the day of man when rebellious humans held sway over the earth. The awful hour of great tribulation is over. God's response to mankind's coup d'etat. We're past the second coming of Jesus. The lion has returned and taken the jungle. He's redeemed all that sin has ruined. Satan is now in the lake of fire. At the great white throne, Jesus has dispensed justice on all those who refused His mercy. As a final stroke to the world that was, the elements have melt with a fervent heat. The Creator has uncreated so that He can bring out the very best wine. A new heaven and a new earth. By chapter 22, the old earth is gone. The universe to which it belonged is gone. God has saved the best for last. All that remains of what was before is a city. John refers to it as the new Jerusalem. Today, you and I, we call it heaven. It's the mansion that Jesus is constructing. It's the place He's preparing for us. It's occupied by believers from all the ages. And John sees it joining the new heaven and the new earth. You know, in Scripture, God gives a progression, gives us a progression of glimpses into heaven. We see it as a kingdom. Then we see it as a city. Then we see it as a garden. From a distance, heaven is seen as a kingdom. You know, Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come. He used the term the kingdom of heaven on many occasions. Revelation 4 depicted God's throne. Heaven is where the king reigns. It's a kingdom. In chapter 22, though, we get up close and personal with heaven. We see that it's also a city with walls and with gates and enjoying a quality of life so peaceful that it's difficult for us to imagine living in today's sin-stained world what it'll be like. But it's beautiful. It comes to us. 
Heaven comes as a bride at her wedding, walking down the aisle. There's no disappointments here. It's the fulfillment of all our desires. And now John takes us through the gates and inside the walls of this city. And guess what we find? A garden. Think of the first few verses here of Revelation chapter 22 as a virtual tour of heaven. I'm going to take you on a tour of heaven this morning. Verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's a river and a throne and a street, and a tree. Now from John's description in chapter 21, verse 21, you enter into the new Jerusalem through gates of pearls onto a street paved with gold, gold so pure that it's transparent. Once there was a rich man who managed to defy the odds. You know they say you can't take it with you. Well, he did. He was able to put his gold into two suitcases, and he ordered it to be placed in his casket when he died. Somehow, he ended up in heaven with his two suitcases full of gold bars. Of course, the angel at the gate was sort of puzzled. He told him, he said, what are you doing with suitcases? Didn't you know heaven is an all-inclusive? Well, when the man opened his suitcases and the angel saw the gold bars, he started laughing. He says, heaven is the fulfillment of all desire, and you brought asphalt? Hey, what nations fight for on earth, they pave the street with in heaven. Hey, this is a different kind of city from the streets up. But it does have one commonality with cities today. It's got a main street. You know, recently the National League of Cities listed the most common street names in the United States. Here are the top ten street names in America. First is Second Street. Second is 3rd Street. 3rd is 1st Street. Now if that confuses you, you'll be happy to know that 4th is 4th Street. 5th is Park Street. 6th is 5th Street. 7th is Main Street. 8th is 6th Street. Ninth is Oak Street. And 10th is 7th Street. So let's take it from the top. First is second, second is third, third is fourth, fourth is fourth, fifth is park, sixth is fifth, seventh is main, eighth is sixth, ninth is oak, and tenth is seventh. I practiced that a little bit. I'm sure you got it now. I'm sure you got it. And you need to know that heaven has got a main street. It might not be the most popular name for streets, but every single city has a, a main thoroughfare, a main street. In the UK, the main street is called High Street. In Germany, it's the Hauptstraßen. For French Canadians, it's the La Rue Principale. In Sweden, it's the Sturgarten, or literally, the big street. Well, heaven also has a big street. In fact, Main Street is its only street. And here, John takes us cruising down the main drag in the New Jerusalem. Picture a street. That leads to a throne. The street is wide. And rather than a center line or a median or turn lanes, there's a river running 
down the middle. You don't have to worry. The engineers that designed Highway 78 had nothing to do with heaven. Aren't you glad? There's a big street with a river running right down the middle. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to speak in San Antonio, Texas, and the church put Kathy and I up at the river walk. There's a river that runs through the downtown area, and there's sidewalks on either side of the river. It's a lot like the river in heaven. Heaven's a lot nicer than Texas, trust me. But it does give you the idea, Main Street in heaven will be like a river walk. You know, throughout the Bible, God is seen as a river flowing through our lives. Psalm 1 says that the blessed man is like a tree planted by the river. In Psalm 46, God is the river that makes glad the city of God. In John chapter 7, Jesus said that from a believer's heart will spring rivers of living water. I'm sure in heaven we'll drink from the river of life and we'll walk along its banks. Jesus will be like that river to us, a source of pure and clean and endless refreshment and health. And understand where this river of life originates. It flows out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now from the outside, walking into heaven, we've gone past the wall, through the gate, down the street, by the river... But from the inside of heaven, working outward, everything begins at the throne. At the throne of God and of the Lamb. You need to know that for all eternity, we'll be reminded that all that, that's good, all that's good, all that flows to us that's good, comes not from the human spirit. Comes not from freedom and independence and democracy. No, no. All that's good flows from the throne of God. All that's good flows out of our submission to His authority. It's not self-government that produces this utopian paradise called heaven. It's God's government. And on either side of the river of life, John sees a tree. Perhaps it's one tree that grows on both banks of the river and the water runs through the center of the tree trunk. The original language could indicate multiple trees. Maybe it's a row of trees growing on either bank. But Main Street in heaven affords us a welcome sight. You remember Adam and Eve? They were booted from the Garden of Eden because God had to bar them from the tree of life. He dispatched an angel, an armed angel, to guard the tree. Now in heaven, mankind has access again to that same tree. If the first couple had eaten of the forbidden fruit, or from the fruit of the tree of life, In their fallen state, they would have lived forever in their sin. But now that we've been fully redeemed, our access to that tree of life is restored. Finally, we're able to munch its fruits again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul mentioned the vision, his vision of heaven. He called it the third heaven. We talked about this last week. The blue sky is the first heaven. The night sky is the second heaven. But the eternal celestial city is the third heaven. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul refers to it as a paradise. An instructive word. Paradise is an old Persian term used for an enclosed garden in the midst of a desert. An oasis, if you will. Within its walls you'd find flower beds and Fruit trees and grassy arbors next to babbling brooks under plenty of shade with fountains to enjoy and spices to savor. 
the new Jerusalem is a city with plenty of green space. When you ponder heaven, what do you think? Hey, I hope you don't think of long, white hospital corridors or banks of fluffy, puffy, cumulus clouds or marble stair steps for heart-playing angels. Oh, no. Heaven is far more intriguing, far more lush. Think of heaven as a garden paradise, like a Hawaii or a Fiji or a Tahiti. As we said last week, we came from the garden and we'll return to the garden. The human story should be entitled, From Paradise Lost to Paradise Regained. The original garden was called Eden, which means delights. That was God's original intention for you and me, eternal delights. And that too is our ultimate destiny if we know Jesus. Notice a couple of the other details here from verses 1 and 2. Notice this tree of life bears 12 fruits. One tree yields 12 fruits, bananas and apples and mangoes and who knows what else. 12 different fruits. Apparently there's incredible variety in heaven and few limitations. Heaven is all about God's unbridled creativity. Notice too, each tree yielding its fruit every month. Now, is it one tree producing 12 fruit? Or is it one tree yielding a different fruit each month? Or is it 12 different trees yielding their fruit? I'm not sure. But notice the inclusion of time into the scenario. Here's a mention of months. A lunar measurement. This is eternity now. You remember in chapter 21, verse 23, there's no moon in the New Jerusalem. Yet there's months. Apparently, even in eternity... We won't completely escape time. Today, time rules our lives. We're on the clock. Some of you are timing my sermon, even as I speak. We have alarm clocks and wristwatches and cooking timers. We have limited time, but in heaven, we won't be a slave to time. In heaven, we won't waste time or make good time or run out of time. It's been said of heaven, we'll live with time, but we'll no longer be under its pressure. Today, passing time steals our days, but in heaven we'll utilize time to measure and manage our days. And notice in heaven, this is what I like so much, we'll eat. We'll eat. Why else all this fruit if we're not going to eat it? Now surely we won't have to eat. There's no hunger in heaven. But we don't always eat out of hunger, do we? We eat for enjoyment. Or for fellowship. Or for relaxation. And if you want to eat in heaven, you can eat. I'm sure angel's food cake is on the menu. I'm sure of that. As well as divinity. And seventh heaven bars. Now if you like devil's food cake, better eat eat that now. But I'll bet you that every entree on heaven's menu is calorie free. I'll bet you that. Imagine all you can eat all the time and you'll never gain an inch. I'm not being flippant about this. Our text gives us a reason to believe that everything in heaven is Weight Watchers approved. Notice the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It's not that they cure sickness. There's no illness in heaven. The word healing here can also mean health-producing or health-promoting. 
Did you know that all the fruits and foods in heaven are health foods? Verse 3 answers the question that most people ask. What will we do in heaven? And here's where misinformation abounds. People think that we'll be taking harp lessons. Or we'll be raking clouds or singing 24-7. I, I like this far side cartoon of a guy sitting on the cloud. He's thinking, I wish I'd brought my magazine. Trust me, you're not going to need a magazine to occupy your days in heaven. Verse 3 tells us what we'll be doing. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. What will we do in heaven? We'll work in heaven. You and I were created for meaningful service. Hey, when God created Adam and Eve, He put them in the garden of Eden to be a caretaker over that garden. You know, whenever you complete a task and you walk away with the satisfaction of a job well done, has that ever happened to you? Isn't that a great feeling? You just walk away with that sense of satisfaction. Did you know that's a gift from God? That's how God made you. And it's a foretaste of one of the joys we'll experience in heaven. Sadly, this kind of satisfaction is a rarity on earth. Today we labor under the curse there's thorns and thistles around us. Adam was made from the dust of the ground. Then he was told to work that same dust. But as he did, he left something of himself in his work. He never got out of his labor all that he put into it. And this is now the plight of man, all men. We work by the sweat of our brow. Today, under the curse, all labor is hard labor. We're literally working ourselves to death. Labor in a fallen world is a grind. It's a curse. It's tough to stay motivated. Boredom becomes a problem. Ultimately, every job here and now is a dead-end job. I found a list of excuses to use if your boss ever catches you sleeping at your desk. Some of you might need these. I was testing the keyboard for drool resistance. How about this one? Someone put decaf in the coffee pot marked regular. The mailman went postal and pulled out a gun, and I was playing dead so I wouldn't get shot. <laughs> and last but not least, I like this one. Amen? <laughs> Imagine, though, work without the curse. Work that's no sweat. Every day ends in a sense of satisfaction. Every bid proposal gets accepted. Every idea becomes successful. Every effort is appreciated. In heaven, there won't be any weeds to prohibit a job well done. Every day in heaven, you won't be able to wait till you can get back and clock in again. Hey, we'll all be serving God and bringing Him glory, but we'll be doing it in a way that maximizes our own gifts and talents and brings us immense joy and fulfillment. Here's the ultimate indicator of work in heaven in eternity. Did you know that in heaven, nobody ever asks for vacation? Never. That's incredible. And here in verse 4 is the creme de la creme. Here is the best that heaven offers. Read with me. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Oh my. This is the pinnacle of heaven's delights. 
This is the ultimate of man's ambitions. Nothing tantalizes and raises the expectations higher than this promise that one day you and I and all redeemed humans will look into the face of God. Nothing testifies to the power of the gospel and the cleansing effects of the blood of Jesus than this outcome, that the likes of us will see the face of God. When the ancient mariners sailed their ships across the Mediterranean Sea westward, they would always stop in the Straits of Gibraltar. This was the famous marker. In their minds, this was the point of no return. When they reached the huge rock, they said in their Latin tongue, Ne plus ultra, which means nothing beyond. This is how I feel about verse 4. This, my friend, is the ultimate. There's nothing else that we can imagine doing that would top this experience. To look into the face of God. You remember Moses, he asked to see the glory of God and it was granted to him. But God limited the privilege. You remember in Exodus 33, God warns Moses, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. God knew that fallen flesh could never survive the blaze of his glory. That's when God told him, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses was allowed to see God's backside, but not his face. And yet what Moses was denied, you and I have been promised 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 says of heaven, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Today a veil covers our eyes. We know God in part. But when that veil gets taken away, there'll be no longer will there be limits on what I can learn of God or what I can know of you. I think this answers the oft-asked question, will we recognize each other in heaven? And I believe yes. Here we're told, I shall know just as I also am known. I like what W.A. Criswell said when asked if we'll know each other in heaven. He said, we won't really know each other until we get to heaven. <laughs> in heaven, we'll enjoy a depth of intimacy in all our relationships unknown of here on earth. And just as amazing, His name shall be on their foreheads. He'll put His name on our foreheads. Now, I'm not really into tattoos, i got to admit. i got my Kathy tat over here, and i got my bulldog tat over here. No, not really. But, but here's one tattoo that I really wouldn't mind getting. I want God's name tatted on my forehead. I guess we'll visit New Jerusalem, Inc. Heaven has a tattoo parlor. You remember the beast. You remember how he identified the rebels who pledged allegiance to him. He put a mark on their forehead. Well, hey, he gets that from God. For God marks his own the same way. He isn't ashamed of his followers. God puts his name on our forehead. He brands us as his. It's the one tattoo you won't mind being permanent. It marks you for eternity. We'll see His face. He'll mark our face as His own. 
And then verse 5 tells us, There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. Revelation 21 verse 23, The Lamb is its light, we're told. And they shall reign forever and ever. Hey, we'll not only serve God in eternity, but we'll reign with Jesus forever. Back in chapter 20, we mentioned that we'd rule over the earth in the kingdom age, along with Jesus. But here, apparently, our reign extends further. You know, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3, Paul expands on our duties. He asks, do you not know that we shall judge angels? Judge angels? How are we going to judge angels? Well, I guess we'll call our guardian angel up and say, Hey, where were you when I had that fender bender? When I made that left hand? I, I don't know. Maybe in the new heaven and new earth, though, we'll reign over the angels. And then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Here's that phrase again. In the first verse of Revelation 1, we saw this same phrase used, must shortly take place. At first glance, we assume that speaks of a length of time. But that's not what it means. It's more about succession of what takes place. It basically means this. Here's what's next. All that John has seen in the Revelation is what's next on God's divine agenda. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples and the church was born on the day of Pentecost, Peter explained what had happened by quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel. He said this, In the last days, says God, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Pentecost marked the beginning of the last days. Now for the past 2,000 years, we've been living in the last days. The church age is the last days. After Jesus came and the Spirit was poured out, what comes next in God's plan is the rapture, the day of the Lord. We're on the edge. We're sitting on the brink of what comes next. Think of it this way. Until 32 AD, history was moving across the tabletop. But the cross and Pentecost were a long way away. But history was moving to that point in time when Jesus would come and pour out His Spirit and make preparations for the kingdom. We were moving toward the cross in Pentecost, across the tabletop, until 32 AD, until those events took place. That brought us to the edge, to the last days. At that point, though, we took a hard 90-degree turn And ever since, history has been moving parallel to the edge of that table. We're still in the last days. At any moment, we can go over the edge. The point of Revelation isn't to give us a time frame. It's to tell us what happens after we go over the edge. What's next is Jesus. His restoration of all things. And that's why his encouragement to saints for the last 2,000 years has been the same. Verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. You see, we're on the edge, and Jesus is next. John continues, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This is true of the book of Revelation, but also the Bible. You read it, you keep it, and you'll be blessed. Blessed. 
You know, when you purchase an appliance, you save yourself a lot of hassle by reading the owner's manual. Don't know why that's always the last thing I do, but it should be the first. And that's what you do when you follow God's Word. God created us. Thus, the Bible is the manufacturer's manual. Take heed to it, and you're bound to be blessed. Verse 8, Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. John, don't do that. He made the same mistake back in Revelation 19, verse 10. Apparently, all the glory made the guy giddy. He stopped thinking. God alone deserves to be worshipped. And here the angel corrects John. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that. Knock it off, John, John. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. What a sober warning. Realize, John has just seen heaven. And yet it doesn't mean he's always right. It's amazing to me how quickly he goes from revelator to idolater. He does in a twitch. This is why a person's experiences don't validate their orthodoxy. Just because they've seen stuff doesn't mean that their teaching can be trusted. Always make sure you check out what they say with what God hath said. Verse 10, And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Back in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, an angel told Daniel to shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Daniel too spoke about the last days. But at the time of Daniel, 600 B.C., people weren't ready to grasp the prophecies of these last days. It was B.C., before Christ. The prophecies were too distant. They were off the radar. But now John is given the opposite command. He's forbidden to seal up the prophecies of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God wants us to know what's next. Pay attention to verse 11. To me, it's one of the most ominous warnings in all the Scripture. It's one of those verses that sends chill bumps. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Aren't you glad... That tomorrow you can change. You can eat too much today. But tomorrow you can change. You can get angry with your spouse today. But you can promise that tomorrow you'll change. Aren't you glad that we have tomorrow? Tomorrow always offers the hope of change. Until we pass from this life into eternity. And at that moment, at that exact moment, when you cross over from this life into eternity, you forfeit all possibility for change. Once a person passes from time into eternity, once they moved into the eternal state, whatever condition they were in at that moment is solidified and lasts for all eternity. You forfeit the possibility of change. In Dante's famous novel, The Inferno, he inscribes the following words over the gates of hell. 
those who enter here abandon all hope. If you were filthy, you'll be filthy forever. If you were holy, you'll be holy forever. Lester Moore was a Wells Fargo agent in the Wild West. He was buried on Boot Hill Cemetery, Tombstone, Arizona. His gravestone reads as follows. Here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a forty-four, no less, no more. And that can be said for every single person when they check out of this world. What you were while you were on this earth, you'll be for all eternity, no less, no more. If you're unjust in this life, you're going to be unjust still. If you're holy in this life, you'll be holy still. If you walked with Jesus in the here and now, you'll walk with Jesus forever. But if you did it, you'll live apart from Him forever. Verse 12 tells us, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to His work. I hope you're prepared for what's next. Jesus is next. When He left, He said He would return again. Are you ready for Him? Jesus is what's next. Jesus now speaks, I am the Alpha and the Omega. These were the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is saying, I'm the A to Z and everything in between. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I like how A.W. Tozer puts it. He says, man in the plan of God has been granted considerable say, but never is he permitted to utter the first word nor the last. That is the prerogative of the deity and one which he will never surrender to his creatures. God always gets the last word. And his last word to us, my friends, is Jesus He's the first and He's the last. And thus, if you reject Jesus, there is no other hope. He says, Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs. And i got to stop there. Notice the spelling here. It's not D-A-W-G-S. It's D-O-G-S. This is a vital theological distinction here. The other morning, my, my neighbor's dog was barking like crazy and kind of woke me up. and I was so upset. It caused me to long for heaven. There'll be no dogs in heaven. No, that's not what it means. In ancient times, dogs were rarely pets. They were beasts. They were predators and scavengers. And thus the word dog became slang for the most brutal, the most animalistic, the most immoral sinner. And dogs are not the only people outside the New Jerusalem. They're sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. You know, we need to understand the difference between the American dream and the Bible's vision of heaven. All our recent presidents have promised an America where no one is left out, where no child is left behind, where no group gets forgotten or neglected or deprived of the rights and benefits given to the whole, no matter their morality. America's vision is inclusion. We are the wide gate, the broad road, but not heaven. Heaven is the narrow gate. Verse 14 tells us that heaven is a place for those who do God's commandments. Who approach life God's way, 
not their own way, who don't trust in their own wisdom, but who fear God and trust Him. Those who don't fear God, they end up on the outside looking in. They're outside of heaven. Hey, heaven is going to consist of all nationalities, all ethnicities. But John distinguishes heaven not just by those on the inside, but by those who are on the outside as well. The spiritually rebellious and the sexually immoral and those who harm indiscriminately and who worship false gods and who practice lies. Hey guys, not everybody is going to go to heaven. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Notice Jesus identifies himself by two idioms which speak of different events. The root and offspring of David, that refers to his birthright, his first coming. He came from the lineage of David. And then the morning star, that's the last star seen in the night sky before the dawning of a new day. This speaks of the rapture. That event that takes us over the edge of the table is His coming for the church in the clouds. He's the morning star. And the Spirit and the bride, they say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Man, I love this chorus of comes. Understand, salvation is free, paid for by Jesus. But you have to come. This is all that it costs you to be forgiven and made new and become part of God's family. You just have to come from wherever you're at to Jesus. you got to get up, turn your back on where you are and who you're with, and you've got to come. It may involve stepping over your pride, but you've got to come. You've got to have faith enough to come. God won't chase you down. Don't expect Him. God's the judge, not the cops. He doesn't make arrests. The father of the prodigal son, he did race down the street to greet the wayward boy. But after he had come, after he was walking up the road, the father didn't force him home, and he won't force you home. you got to come. We're told, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. The spiritual refreshment, the satisfaction is free. But you got to believe enough to scoop and drink. Now, no doubt, John knew that he was the last of the original 12 apostles. And thus, he was the last person authorized to write sacred scripture. And that's behind these next two verses, verses 18 and 19. Let me give you a little background. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gave the 12 apostles a special authority to bind and to loose. This meant it was up to them to establish doctrine and practice for the church. They bound or obligated the church to biblical beliefs and morals. They loosed or freed up the church from legalistic trappings that didn't really add to godliness. And they did this binding and loosing through the writings of the New Testament. All 27 New Testament books were written by either one of the twelve apostles or at least under his supervision. Since John was the last of the twelve apostles at the time of the revelation, he knew that the canon or the body of Scripture would conclude with him. And so he attaches a warning. 
And I believe it's meant not only for this last book, but for the other 65 books that have come before it. All of Scripture, John says, or Jesus says through John, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. You don't want to tamper with the book. Years ago, when the Reader's Digest released their condensed version of the Bible, it's interesting they conveniently left out these two verses. (laughs) I think the reason is pretty obvious. Thomas Jefferson revealed his hubris and arrogance when he took a pair of scissors and he cut out parts of the New Testament that offended his anti-supernatural biases. Some folks adopt a Dalmatian theology. Those of you that were offended by my dog crack earlier, I threw up this nice little Dalmatian puppy especially for you. But some people have a Dalmatian theology. Oh, they believe a spot here and a spot there. But no, God has inspired the whole enchilada. All 66 books of the Bible are true. They're God's Word and they're given to you. Why? Who are you? Who is anyone to cut and paste the Bible? The Bible needs no edits. It's sufficient for all things pertaining to what we believe and how we should live. Woe to the person who tampers with this book. Plagues get added to the adders. The names of the subtractors get subtracted from the book of life. God takes the Bible seriously, and I suggest we do as well. We're winding down now. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Three times we've been told now to get ready. Jesus is coming quickly. Sure, it's been 2,000 years, but in comparison with eternity, He's coming quickly. And after beholding this revelation, after seeing the glories of the exalted Christ, John just has to respond. He knows what's next now. The king of the jungle is about to roar onto the stage of history. And John now shouts through ink and pen, Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And here's my final thought on the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we wonder, why did an almighty God, an all-loving God, why did God allow mankind to rebel in the first place? I mean, we began in a garden and we end in a garden. But all that occurred in between, the crime and the war and the pain and the dying and the crying, was it really worth it just to get back from where we started? Just to simply return to square one, was it worth it? But hey, God always saves the best wine for last. Yes, we've swapped one garden for another, but the man in the final garden is superior to the man in the former garden. For redemption trumps innocence. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were innocent. They knew no sin. But neither did they know the depths of God's forgiveness. 
in the joy of being free, in the severity of his justice and the righteousness of his judgment and thus the extravagance of his grace. They were ignorant as to the extent that God loved them. They were innocent, but they were ignorant. But not the man in the final garden. Innocent, he's not. He's been through the fire, the pain of the sin and the death. He's known what it's like to be lost and alone. He's rebelled and he's failed and he's sorry for it. And now he appreciates that he's been found. He's been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. He now knows that God loves him and he loves God. The lion is his king and he shouts with all the redeemed, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You see, God's goal for us, God's goal for us all along has been redemption, not innocence. Redemption is better than innocence. And thus it's fitting how the book closes. It's as if the groom finally gets to kiss his bride. We're left with a token of grace, verse 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It's grace that awaits us. It's still true of Jesus. He saves the best for last. Last. 